I haven't gone the last two Sundays, you don't need to clap at that, but I was in a, Europe, at, in Hungary, on a mission trip, and I was with about 30 volunteers from Scottsdale Bible Church, and we went over to help serve and, and, and run the European Leadership Forum, which is a gathering of about 550 Christian leaders from churches, mission agencies, academics, and all that throughout all of Eastern and Western Europe, and they're from 40 different nations, and they meet every year, and they need about, oh, 50 or 60 Americans to help run this place and uh, to serve. So we took about 30 of our people over on a mission trip, and I got to tell you, I've never been more proud of people of Scottsdale Bible Church. They just selflessly uh, served from about 6 in the morning to about 9 or 10 at night, helping run this forum, and uh, it was just an amazing uh, experience for us to just get a glimpse into what God is doing in Europe because it's such a dark place right now. There's so many needs there on a spiritual and relational level, and it was just great to be a part of seeing what the Lord is doing. We got to hear speakers like Oz Guinness and Becky Pippert and some others that are, are helping over there as well, if not leaders over there. And I just appreciated your prayers for those of you who did pray for us. And here's the real deal is that there are 20 more teams, more than 20 more teams, going out this summer from our church that will comprise hundreds of volunteers of people going on short-term mission trips. And so they need your prayers. So if you're supporting somebody, make sure you pray for that person you support. If you need a list, I think you can get it out back of just what our teams are, where they are, and let's just uphold them in prayer that the Lord would use them and also increase their vision for the world. Uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but in your bulletin on the back, there's a, uh, a, a back of my outline, there's a financial piece just talking about our budget for this next fiscal year. I won't bore you with those details. But again, if you look closely at what's happened this year through your giving in both in this church and in missions, it's profound stuff. Of 30% of the money given to this church has gone to missions and outreach, and we've done everything but, but like supporting significant groups here in Phoenix, as well as you've seen with Ahmad and Jets all throughout the world. So it's exciting stuff going on. You can read about it. Most importantly, please continue to pray about it. Now this morning, we are halfway through the book of Philippians. That's our study for this spring into the summer. And so I'm going to pray right now. If you haven't picked up on it yet, we're talking about humility. We've been singing about it. Troy mentioned it. He read about it. So now we're going to dive into the text and talk about humility. And, and I just got to say, I, I, I'm so fired up about what we're going to talk about today with humility that, that it's hard for me to even contain myself. Because if you can grab onto what we're going to talk about today, this idea of being downwardly mobile in your life, because our world tells us to be upwardly mobile. If you can learn to be downwardly mobile, I promise you, you'll find some of that peace, that joy, that purpose that, that all of our hearts are longing for as we follow Christ. So let's dial into what he says right now and let's begin by praying. Father, I thank you for your word and your truth that has invaded this world through your son, Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, now some 2,000 years later, as we wait for his return, we can rally around his truth and learn through the power of your spirit uh, what our lives can be like as we follow Jesus. And so I pray that as we open up to Philippians chapter 2 this morning, that, God, you might lift our sights beyond the here and now to what our lives can be as we follow Jesus and faithfully become like him in our lives. And so God teaches what humility is today. Most importantly, help us to get on the road toward humility ourselves. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, let's face it, guys. Humility continues to get a bad rap in the world today. It does. 
Uh, humility gets a bad rap. I, I mean, I'm telling you, you talk about humility in polite society today, and people are really not into it, and most people don't have really flowery thoughts or elevated thoughts when they think of the word or the concept of humility. I love how Bill Hybels says it in his book, Descending into Greatness, as he likens this idea of humility to the idea of being downwardly mobile. Listen to what he says. He says, in the vocabulary of the world, down is a word reserved for losers, cowards, and the bear market. It is a word to be avoided or ignored and certainly not discussed seriously, especially in polite society. It is a word that colors whatever it touches, even the otherwise proper company of words that it keeps, down and out, downfall, downscale, downhill, downhearted, and worst of all, down under. A word, it seems, only on the unfortunate lips of the weak, the poor, or the dead. He says, if all that were not enough, there is the crowning blow against the word, its antonym, up. And up in our high-voltage society is a word that has come to be cherished, almost worshipped. It is a word reserved for winners, heroes, and those who know their bull. It is a word to be admired and pursued, the unspoken talk at the party. Upscale, up-and-coming, upwardly mobile, upper class, the word of the chosen few and the strong. And then he goes on to say in this book, and yet if you want to be truly great, then the direction you must go is down. You must descend into greatness because Jesus Christ descended into, great, into greatness. Folks, it's a tough idea, and even tougher to live, this idea of humility. This idea of becoming downwardly mobile in an upwardly mobile culture in our lives is very difficult for people to understand. And probably the biggest misconception, even alive in the church today, is that humility is for the weak, the faint of heart, and the meek and the mild. That it's only reserved for those who have somehow been humbled in life, not for all of us to make the choice to be humble as we follow Jesus Christ. And yet the tragedy of that is that not only is humility the heart of what it means to be a Christian, it's the essence of Jesus Christ himself. And as we're going to see today, the Bible over and over again, like a scratch CD, says that anybody who chooses to follow Jesus Christ must choose humility as well. In fact, without humility, you really don't get <clears throat> what it means to be a Christian. You don't get what it means to follow Jesus in your life. And yet we have a lot of confusion and misconceptions as to what humility really is. So look up here on the screen. Here are some questions I would have for you. What is humility really? Where is it most seen? What is it like? How do we attain it? I mean, these are questions that I find that most Christians really don't have a clear and cogent answer to. I mean, just ask four or five Christians today the answer to these questions, and kind of like polling Bill O'Reilly, Anderson Cooper, Bill Maher, and Britt Hume on the state of the economy, you're going to get questions all over the map, all different ideas on what it would mean to solve this dilemma, in this case, humility. Humility is not something that most believers can easily define and even describe or talk intelligently about in their lives. And so the only thing I really want to do today is break this chain. And I want to try to get us all on the same page as to what the Bible says humility really is, where it's most seen, and how each of us can begin to live a life truly marked by descending into greatness. And to do this, I want to take you to what is probably the most important passage, clear passage on humility in all of the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 16. 
And so if you brought a Bible with you this morning, I want you to open up to Philippians 2, 5 through 16, and I'm going to read for you right now what the Scripture says. If you didn't bring a Bible, look up here on the screen. You can follow along as I read. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, or made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, if you are tracking with this passage at all, you know that there is like gigabytes of truth and gigabytes of information in here for us to digest. But as many of you have also known about me after four years almost of being your pastor, I tend to be a reductionist. So when I read complex things in Scripture, what I tend to want to do is reduce it to its most simple form so that we can all get it. And over the last few weeks, as I've been thinking about this passage and trying to reduce it, I thought, well, what is the main point of this passage? And it's really not complicated. Look up here on the screen. It's this, and that is that Jesus Christ has modeled ultimate humility for you and me. That's what Philippians 2 is saying here. Jesus Christ has modeled ultimate humility for you and me. For those of us who want it said even more straightforward, Christ was humble and we should be as well. That's the point of this passage. It's laying out for us Jesus Christ's humility and then saying, by the way, y'all should be humble as well, so get with the program. Uh, folks, Bible experts call this passage a paradigmatic passage. Is that not a big word or what? A paradigmatic passage, simply meaning that this passage was originally written to be a paradigm or a pattern for our lives to follow. So don't miss this. This passage was not written to be some profound words of theology about who Christ is and what he has done, though it is that. It was written, however, so that we would see something life-changing in the life of Jesus Christ and begin to pattern our own lives after him. That's the point of why Paul is writing this. Make no mistake, this passage was not written to be studied in the classrooms of seminaries or even in church Sunday school classes. It was written to a military outpost, remember the context of Philippians, to people who were normal, everyday people trying to live Monday through Saturday in a Christian way. They were trying to follow Jesus as they did their jobs and rubbed shoulders with lots of lost people who had no clue what Christianity was about. And so what Paul is helping them do here is to see who Jesus was, why he came, and then how we can pattern our lives after him. It's a paradigmatic or a paradigm type of passage. And so in keeping with this clear contextual intent of this passage, I wanted to only do two things in our time remaining this morning. 
First, I want us to unpack then what it is saying about Jesus and who he is and why he came and what his humility looks like. And then I want to ask what our response to this should be. In other words, how you and I then are to pattern our lives after this. And so let's first park for a few moments in front of these opening verses here and take a deep look at Christ's humility being talked about here. And more than anything else, I want you to simply notice that in descending downward in his humility, Jesus Christ experienced no less than four levels of descent that show for us or share for us extremely clearly what humility is really like. And notice that it all begins at the very top with him being God. It all begins with Jesus being God. That's where Paul wants us to start. Look at verses 6 and 7 again of Philippians 2. It says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Pause right there. That phrase, form of God, what the NIV inter or, uh, translates as the very nature God, is the Greek word morphe. And most interesting about this word is that it literally means form or shape, but with the idea that the form or shape that you see is very real in all of its essence. It's a what you see is what you get kind of form that's being talked about here. So check this out. Say you were hiking in the woods of, say, the Grand Tetons up in Jackson, Wyoming, and it's toward dusk, and all of a sudden you see on the trail ahead of you a form or shape of a grizzly bear. What do you think you're looking at? A grizzly bear, right? And you're going to run because you've learned in life already that if you see the form or shape of something, that unless you're having a hallucination, it's probably the real thing. So if you're here in the desert and all of a sudden you see across a path in front of you a form or shape of a rattlesnake, it's probably a, a rattlesnake. Because again, we've learned in life that the form or shape of something usually denotes the real thing. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. He's saying that when Jesus Christ came, he came in the form or shape of God, denoting that he is in, in essence God himself come to this earth. Theologians call it the incarnation, the idea that when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he had pre-existed as God, fully so, with all the powers and rights that come with being God. It's the form of God. That was Jesus' starting place as one who now is going to become downwardly mobile. And that's right when the turning point comes in. When it says, and you guys picked up on this, that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped which simply means that Jesus decided to do something that would take him from his lofty and unimpeachable position of being God, something that would show that he wouldn't mind giving up some of the prerogatives and rights of deity for a time. And it tells us what he did, that he emptied himself. That word means that he literally poured something out completely and thoroughly. And what is it that he poured out? He poured out himself as God into flesh, into a human being. And that's the first level of his descent that you don't want to miss. And that is that he became one of us. He became a human being. And Paul could not be more clear in spelling this out to us. Look at verses 7c and 8a. It says, and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Whoa. We just learned that when the Bible uses that word morphe, form, it means the real thing, right? 
So it's saying in verse 7 that the real thing, the real thing for him is being God. And then it says here, but he's also found in human form, which means that also the real thing is that he's now a human. For the first three centuries of the church, they wrestled with how this could be. Like if he's in the form of God and in the form of man, does that mean he's like 50% God and 50% man? Or, or kind of like appeared to be man but was really still God? Or was it like an 80-20 thing? I mean, what is it? And after three centuries of bickering back and forth on this, they finally landed on this. They landed on the fact that it must mean that he's 100% God still, because God could be no less, and he's 100% human. It's called the mystery of the deity of Christ, fully God, fully human at the same time. But don't miss that when he chose to become a human being, when he chose to become one of us, it was a bold move of self-sacrifice because Jesus was limiting himself to what humans are limited to, suffering the bitterness of living in this fallen world that he originally created good. And once you get that, you're now nudging up against a good definition of humility. That humility might be defined as something self-sacrificial. It might be defined as emptying yourself into the life of another. But before we go any further with that idea, delving into more of this idea of humility, notice that Jesus' descent doesn't stop there, but it tells us what kind of human being he became, and it leads us to the second level of his descent, and that is that he became a servant. Did you pick up on that in verse 7b? A servant. It says, taking the form of a servant. It's the Greek word doulos. It means slave or servant, one who pours himself or herself into the life of another. And Jesus reflected this in both his life and, as we're going to see in a second, in his death. I mean, as we all know, he had a life of service and ministering to others through teaching, washing feet, healing, feeding those in need, showing compassion and defending outcasts. I mean, Jesus served like crazy when he was on this earth. And so isn't it interesting that in becoming a human being, Jesus didn't become a power broker like Donald Trump? I mean, he could have done that. I know that sounds far-fetched, but it's really true. I mean, if you were God and you wanted to come to this earth to show your power and your goodness, you could have come as Donald Trump. You could have come as some guy who has a lot of power, a lot of prestige, a lot of visibility. But Jesus didn't choose any of that. No, he chose to come as a servant. I thought he could have come as Bill Gates. He could have come as somebody just massively wealthy back there in the Roman world who would have the ears of lots of people. But he didn't choose to do that. He chose to come as a servant. He could have come as a senator back in the Roman world, which would be similar to a senator today who had all the political power and the ear of the elite. But he didn't come as that. He became a servant. Again, we're starting to nudge toward the definition of what humility is, this idea of self-sacrifice, maybe seeking the glory of another. We'll get to that in just a minute. But before we do, notice with me that there's even a third level of Jesus' descent, and that is he didn't just stop becoming, becoming a human, didn't stop, stop at becoming a servant, but then demonstrated a self-sacrificing nature by going to his death. He committed the ultimate act of heroism and died at the young age of 33. And as most of us know here this morning, his death was in accordance with the Old Testament law of blood for sin so that Jesus was dying on a wooden cross for the sins of humankind so that you and I might be brought to God in a forgiving relationship. 
plan from God since the foundation of the world. He would give his one and only son. He would give Jesus as one who had descended now to become a human being, even a servant, to now give his life in death so that you and I might be brought to God. That's Jesus' descent into this world. And descending even further to an unprecedented fourth level. He didn't just die, but Paul makes it very clear here that he died in the most horrible and unimaginable way, and that is that he died on a cross. He was crucified on a cross. It says there in verse 8d, even death on a cross. Now, folks, do we all understand that we have totally sanitized what the cross originally represented 200 years ago. Do we all understand that? I mean, we wear a cross today as jewelry around our necks. We give them as gifts. We adorn our churches with them, and some even use the sign of a cross before they pray. So much so that if an alien were to come to our world today and just spend one week with the average Christian, and then we ask that alien, what does the cross mean? An alien would say, well, I think it's a quaint symbol of the Christian faith, right? That's what they would say. And yet the reality is, is that 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote these words and said, even death on a cross, he wasn't thinking of a Hallmark card. He wasn't thinking about some quaint little symbol of the Christian life. Though in the context here and in the context how any of them thought of a cross back then, he was trying to describe the most brutal, unimaginable way that somebody would die back then, a way that was reserved only for hardened criminals. Don't miss this. A way that would be reserved for somebody who was going downwardly mobile in their lives. I love how Cicero said it about a generation before Jesus existed. He said to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is, well, there's no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. Strip to your outer garments. The slow death of suffocation as the weight of your hanging body collapses your own lungs, combined with the pain of the stakes that have been drilled through your arms and your legs, out in the open for all to see and jeer. That was the cross. That was crucifixion, and it was how Jesus died. And so don't miss the progression here, folks. Look behind me on the screen. This is so critical for our understanding that we're going to give you in about one minute of humility. Jesus starts as God in full glory with all the rights and benefits of one who is totally self-sufficient and totally self-satisfied. That's what the Trinity is. But then in choosing self-sacrifice and the needs of others, like a world that's bound for hell and needs forgiveness of their sin, he becomes a human, limited in time and space, exposed to all the sorrows of our fallen world. And not just any human, but a servant pouring sacrificially into the lives of others. And not just a servant, but even going to death, even the brutal death on a cross. Four levels of descent. This is our picture, our paradigm, our pattern of what humility really and truly is. And I know some of you aren't fired up about this, but I'm telling you, what Paul is trying to tell us here is that this is what your life needs to be about Monday through Saturday. That as you follow your Savior, you need to have the same kind of downward descent in your life, in your relational base, how you view others, how you treat others, how you approach God, how you do your job, how you love your kids. 
that the same kind of humility and descending into greatness should mark our lives as well. And don't mistake me, I'm not saying that we follow Jesus in every detail that he did, like by going to a cross, because that was him, he was God, and we aren't dying for the sins of the whole world. That's why this is a pattern or a paradigm, because what it means is that there's something very profound and real here in showing us what humility is and the pathway of it. So let's answer directly our question before us. What is humility then in light of Jesus' pattern? What is it that we're to follow as we follow Jesus? Two components you don't want to miss here. Look up here on the screen. And that is that humility is a life marked by self-sacrifice and it's self-sacrifice that seeks the glory of another, usually God, but definitely not one's own. That's humility. And I would submit to you that if you have one without the other here, it's not humility, it must have both. That the pattern Jesus set for us is that humility is self-sacrificial. It does something that benefits another and denies yourself. And it's done for the glory, the inward motivation of another for no self-glory at all. These are the two indispensable components of humility. And without both, you don't have real humility. So if it's self-sacrifice, but it's done for one's own glory and reputation, then you and I both know that's not humility. That might be self-sacrificial, but don't call it humble. And if one doesn't care about his or, own glory, his or her own glory, but never does anything sacrificial for another person as the result, then it's empty humility, and in the end, it's not really truly humility. No, the pattern that Jesus set is that humility has to have two components for it to be humility. It needs to be self-sacrificing and for the glory of another. I remember about seven, eight years ago, I was uh, in Cleveland, and I was coaching the assistant coach for my son's then sixth grade basketball team. And, and you guys got to laugh at this because, you know, the reason I learned in community sports that if they ever ask you to be the assistant coach, what that simply means is, is that you're not very good at the head coach, but we need a warm body who won't get in the way of the head coach. And so look at me. Obviously, I was not a great basketball player, so they asked me to be the assistant coach of Paul's team, and the head coach was a good friend of mine who went to another church, and his son Josh was clearly, hands down, the best basketball player on the team. That's the way community leagues are as well. They pick the guy whose dad, whose son is the best, and they make him the head coach. And I got to tell you, halfway through the season, I was very glad to be the assistant coach on this team because I was the head coach of Paul's baseball team, and we went 0-14 for the season, which is why they don't make me head coaches anymore. But on this basketball team, as the assistant coach, we had an undefeated season about halfway through. First time my son had ever been on a winning uh, team, and it was wonderful. And I'll never forget the game that we were going into about halfway through the season. Again, sixth grade sports, we're all into it. And as the other team was warming up, I started to get a smile on my face because I thought this is going to be a slaughter. They were smaller. The kids could barely reach the basket. They weren't making even very many layups. And as I counted, they only had four kids on the team to our seven. And so being the competitive spirit that I am, I thought they don't even have enough kids to make a five-person basketball team another win for us. And as I'm sitting there on the side thinking all of these flowery thoughts, uh, the coach comes over to me and he says, hey, I just had a discussion with the other coach and we've decided to make this more fair, so we're going to give him two of our players. And right then I'm thinking, not Josh, not Josh, not Josh. And he says, and we're going to give them Josh, his son. And we're also going to give him your son, Paul, who was a pretty good player himself. 
And the second he said that, I thought, we're done. We're going to lose. I mean, this thing's just, our, ru- our winning streak is ruined. We're going to lose this game. But I'm a pastor and a Christian, so I'm not going to say that. So I looked at him and I lied. I said, I'm fine with that. And, and, and we went on in the game. I did. And sure enough, was I right, by halftime, they were winning, this other scrawny team, they were winning 14-2, to two, and almost all the points were scored by Josh. And I thought, we're getting clobbered here. But then at halftime, as we're sitting there pondering stuff, I thought to myself, because I was doing a study on Philippians at that time, I thought, this is such a great example of humility. I thought, this is, this is going to warrant a sermon illustration. I thought, this is great. I thought, think about this, I thought, here's this guy who's a successful head coach of a sixth grade basketball team, and, and, and his son is the star player, and in a, you want me to go with this, this bold move of self-sacrifice, sacrificing even his son, that ties in, I thought, he's giving his son to the other team, and I know this guy, he's going to seek no glory for himself at all, it's the perfect definition of humility. And I thought, that's why God allowed this to happen, because I got a sermon illustration out of this thing. I'm thinking that at halftime. I kid you not, right at that moment, the guy comes up to me again, the, the coach of our team, and he says, we're getting killed. And he says, you know, we got to change this. I said, no, no. He said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to give them two other players, and we're taking Josh and Paul back. I said, really? And by then I'm thinking, this is going to ruin the sermon illustration. And sure enough, he takes Josh and Paul back, and we end up winning the game 18 to 14 because Josh is a good player. And Josh scores all the points now for us. And I think to myself, this was almost a perfect illustration of humility. Almost. And then I thought this. Not not grab onto this. I thought, isn't that just life? Isn't that just life? We get so close. We get so close to living Philippians 2, to this idea of self-sacrifice, seeking not one's own glory, but the glory of another, whether it's God or another person, and then we pull back. That, that, that's so me. I don't know about you guys, that's me. I, I, I do that all the time in my life. Uh, don't ever forget what humility is. It's self-sacrifice that seeks the glory of another. You and I need not be hazy anymore on what humility is or looks like. And so now, maybe you can understand why when you look at somebody like Mother Teresa when she was alive, why she transcended denominational barriers, why she transcended even secular barriers. And everybody looked at Mother Teresa and said, humble. Because she went from a life of upper middle class in her culture and served the poor in the slums of Calcutta and always sought the glory of God. Or maybe this is why Billy Graham, who's now what, in his 90s? still gets good press from everybody because he transcends all of those barriers because he's just a humble man who who seeks the glory of his heavenly father, sacrificing his life over and over again for the cause of Christ. Or maybe closer to home, you have somebody in your life that you just love being with. You just love having a cup of coffee with them. And as you analyze it, you realize the reason that you love being with them is because they're always asking you about you. And they always seem more interested in you than they do themselves. And you're tired of hanging around people that are self-obsessed and always thinking about themselves. And it's so refreshing to get around somebody that's a little self-sacrificing and has an interest in you. And you're drawn to that person. And then when you compliment that person and say, gosh, you know, you're just, you're so other-centered. They get red in the face because they don't even know how to handle a compliment like that. 
because they don't want any of the glory at all. And you're drawn to that person. We all have people like that in our lives. Mark this day for what it is. That's humility. And I would submit to you at the end of the day, that's not meek, that's not mild, that's not weak, and that's not spiritually faint-hearted. But that that kind of humility has teeth and confidence. You see, it's people that are like that that boldly know who they are. They know that they're creations of Almighty God with His imprint on them. They usually know that they've been redeemed by Jesus Christ at a precious price of His death on a cross for their sins. And yet they choose not to live self-centered lives, but they choose to live other-centered lives marked by self-sacrifice that prioritizes the needs of other people and then seeks the glory of Almighty God. It's tough and tender at the same time. That's what humility is. And when you and I experience it on a relational level, let's just be honest, we're drawn to that. We go, oh my gosh, I want to get around more and more people like that. Maybe I even want to become like that. And so let's forever put behind any lesser definition of humility in our lives and let's own it for what it is. Self-sacrificing that seeks the glory of another. That's the pattern that Jesus has given us. And so on our eight minutes that we have left here this morning, let's ask and answer two questions. And that is, what are we to do with this then? And then secondly, how are we to do this? And I think you're going to like the answer to both these questions. The first one comes directly out of Philippians 2, the second one from a few other scriptures. But first, what are we to do with it? Look up here on the screen. Here's what we do with it. We obey, we shine, and we follow. That's what we do with this. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says to do with it. We obey him in his word. We shine as those who emulate what true humility is to those around us. And then we follow him faithfully as we want to become more and more humble as we follow Jesus. It's unmistakable. Look at verses 12 and then 15 and 16. This is exactly what Paul is saying. He follows up this pattern by telling us what to do. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So we obey him, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We shine. As lights in this world, not shining in some sort of I know Jesus and you don't and I'm going to heaven and you aren't type of way. No, we shine as ones who emulate what self-sacrifice and seeking the glory of another looks like. Again, the people around you who you're drawn to, Jesus himself, we shine as we pattern our lives after them. And then we follow, holding fast to the word of life, living for him and through him in faith and in trust. These are the responses of those who want to be like Christ in his descent, in his humility. And then how are we to do this? How do we actually do this in our lives? Well, let's get down to to the right to ground level here. Here's how we do it. And some of you aren't going to like this, but I'm telling you this is how it gets done. And that is if you want to do this, you then serve, you forgive, and you adjust your attitude. That's how you do it. Every moment of every day, starting today when you leave here, because we know how the parking lot works here, you serve, you forgive, and you adjust your attitude. That's how we display humility to those around us. 
And we all know this. I mean, we all know the very simple Bible passages that tell us this. We serve. It says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So you and I serve others. That's how we get self-sacrificial in our lives. We see a need, we meet it. Somebody calls us for help, we don't want to do it, we do it. But we serve those around us in self-sacrificing ways, and in so doing, we ingrain humility in our character. Even more harder, we forgive. Luke 6, verse 37 says that if you judge not, you will not be judged. If you condemn not, you will not be condemned. If you forgive, you will be forgiven. The reality is the heart of Christianity is forgiveness. Amen? The heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, modeling his atonement for crying out loud for our sins, is to then forgive others around us when they harm or hurt us. I can't think of anything more humbling than to forgive those around us, releasing them from anything they owe us because of hurting us. And then lastly, and some of you groaned at this one, you adjust your attitude continually and ongoingly. What do I mean by that? You simply have an attitude of being self-sacrificial, the attitude of seeking the glory of another, and you watch as you have that attitude on the freeway when somebody cuts you off, as you have that attitude at work when somebody gets in your face, as you have that attitude at night when you're arguing with your spouse, as you have that attitude on a Saturday when your kids are going crazy and you wonder how you can corral them, as you have that attitude throughout all the week, you will find yourselves having a humble response to the things around you. Philippians 2.5 starts off saying this. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind, I think the NIV says, this attitude among yourselves. That's what we're to do with this. That's how we pattern ourselves after Jesus. We serve, we have this attitude, and we forgive. And all I can tell you, folks, is that once you latch onto this, once you understand that these are the three building blocks that build us into a downwardly mobile life that follows Jesus, you realize how radically countercultural this is. I mean, some of us think we're being countercultural by giving 10% of our money away. Some of us think we're being countercultural by having a value system that's just a little bit above our neighbor. And though those things might be a little bit countercultural, I'm telling you, you can't get more countercultural than serving, forgiving, and adjusting your attitude. Because everything in our world today says, ah, oh, serve a little bit, but really keep most of it for yourself. Everything in our world today says, yeah, forgive, but only forgive if they deserve it, because justice must reign. And everything in our world today says, yeah, you know, you, you ought to control your attitude a little bit, but hey, if they deserve it, then come at them. And Christianity comes along. Jesus comes along, and he reverses the whole thing. He says, if you want to be my follower, if you want to find joy, peace, and purpose, you can't play by the rules of the world. You must play by the rules of the kingdom. And the rules of the kingdom say serve, forgive, and adjust your attitude. You'll be in that sweet spot of humility and just watch what God does with that in your life. I want to close with an illustration. You're right, amen. I want to close with an illustration here that I think a lot of you will latch on to that I think is kind of a cool illustration. I ran this illustration by some friends over the weekend, and they like had no response, didn't think it was a good illustration, but I said, watch, it will work. It's a great illustration. <laughs> I'm in a humble moment, can you tell? And so, uh, so this is a great illustration, though, because it has to do with a college football coach, and we're, we're going to be entering that season here rather shortly, a college football coach who is the most winningest coach on record. Does anybody know who the most winningest college football coach is? Wait, who did you guys say? Bobby Bell. Bobby Bell? Is that what you said? 
but who, I don't know who he is. Anyways, uh, no, and some guy said uh, in, in the first service, they said Joe Paterno. They, they said some other guys. I, I, I missed it too. When somebody asked me who the most winningest coach in college football is, I had no idea who it was. Everybody I guessed was wrong. And the guy that I was told it is, and I can empirically prove this for you right now, is a guy I'd never heard of. His name is John Gagliardi. He is the head coach at St. John University. It's an NCAA Division III school. He has been the head coach now for 58 years. That's how you become the winningest coach, by the way, in college football. He's now 88 years old, and he is the winningest coach in college football with a staggering record of 478 wins, 129 losses, and 11 ties. It's an 80% winning record. And he is, you can Google it yourself, he is the winningest coach in college football. But it doesn't stop there. The most intriguing thing about Gagliardi is his unconventional way of running a football team. So check this out. He uses no blocking sleds or tackling dummies in practice. The school gives no scholarships. They have no spring practices. There's no compulsory weightlifting program, no whistles. They're not allowed to call him coach. They have to call him John. There's no tackling practice because the players only wear shorts and sweats during practice. And there's no long practices. His practices, even in the height of the season, don't go more than an hour and a half. And so with all of this unconventionality going on, he's also been the winningest coach in college football, winning numerous NCAA championships and holding the highest record. And the question that we need to be asking is how? How can you break all the conventional rules of training a football team and yet have a winning record? And Donald Miller, in one of his books, cites the reason why as he comments on John Gagliardi. Look up here on the screen. He says, players are asked to treat their teammates in a way that they would like to be treated, with kindness, graciousness, and altruism. The players work as hard as they want to work, and when they come to practice, they do exactly as the coach asks them to do, not because their positions are threatened, but because they care about one another, work as a team, and love their coach because they sense his love for them. And as another article goes on to say, they say Gagliardi creates an environment of fun and high expectations, and he concentrates on methods and practices that truly focus on winning football games. And when I read this a few years back, I thought to myself, only in college football could you find an example of the winningest coach who's been able to win through love, who's been able to win through garnishing among all of the college players there for him an attitude of love and respect, and they want to follow him, they want to be good players because he loves them and cares for them. Not exactly the way that most of us think college football should be run. And yet, it's produced the winningest college football team. And do you see my point? I think there's something in that for Christians. We're told in the world today that we will win if we follow the rules of the world. If we're upwardly mobile, if we try to craft our own success, if we go after people, if we do unto others as they do unto us, Heard Madonna say that a few years ago. She said, I live by Jesus' golden rule. I do unto others as they do unto me. I thought, you didn't even get that one right, dear. I thought, that's not the golden rule. You had it close, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
But you see, our world doesn't function like that. Our world tends to function under the rules of its own game. And sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. But then Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to change all the rules. You're going to serve. You're going to forgive. You're going to adjust your attitude. But kind of like Gagliardi here, he says if you do that, and as unconventional as you are, you're going to win. You're going to win. And you're going to have a winning team in your soul. You're going to have peace. You're going to have joy. You're going to have that peace that passes understanding. You're going to be content. You're going to have purpose. Paul says to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. But how do you get that? We're learning today you get that through humility. And when you're humble with those before you on a relational level, before God and with others, it works. I've had some of the worst relational scenarios. I can tell you story after story that would work out terrible. And I responded in a humble way, and God entered in and brought reconciliation, forgiveness, compassion in ways that I never thought possible. That's how humility works. It's unconventional. It breaks all the rules of the world, and yet it gives us a winning record at the end of the day. And as I say so often when I wrap up my message, I just can't wait to see what's going to happen in your life as you apply this. I just can't wait to hear stories from you of what happens as you take the humble road the road less traveled, and see God enter into that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we live in a world that you care so deeply about, that you sent your Son to be the Redeemer, the forgiver of this world. And that, Lord, you even made it very clear then for those of us who accept Jesus Christ and trust him for eternal life, we're now on the road toward even making our lives all that you want them to be. And yet, Lord, many times we think that's going to come through a different path than it comes. And, Lord, one of the things you make clear in your world that if we, as word is if we follow the path of the world, it's just not going to happen that way. We need to follow your path, and your path, as we've seen today, is a path of humility, this downward descent. So, God, thank you for the pattern that Jesus set for us, for what it might mean for God to become a human and then a servant and then death and then even a cross. And so, Lord, as we die to ourselves... And now live a life of self-sacrifice for those around us, our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, those that you've put in our lives. And we do so only for your glory. I pray, God, that you might empower that kind of humility and use that, God, to minister profoundly to those in need. And Lord, I know as a byproduct you're going to give us peace. Your word says that. And purpose that we never thought imaginable. So God, we thank you for this teaching here today from your word. We look forward to what you're going to do in our lives as a result. And we pray these things only and always in Jesus' holy and precious name. We all say together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.